welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Mohan Kumar. I'm a GP trainer and I'm an associate dean for general practice working with Health Education England. My main interest is I lead on the consultation skills masterclass. And with you, we've done many such masterclasses helping educators to understand how to teach consultation skills. Thank you very much. Today's podcast concerns the module which is called TALC, Skills for Effective Information Gathering. And it refers to the specific chapter called, How Can Avoiding Questions Yield More Information? Now, whenever there's talk of how to assess certain matters like suicide risk or a person with breathlessness, our secondary care colleagues often produce long lists of questions to ask the patient. And there's a lot of emphasis in consultation skills training on the difference between open and closed questions and also on the importance of using open questions to gather information. This is a very important distinction, but what is sometimes overlooked is that you can gather information very effectively with hardly any questions being asked at all. I'd like to begin by asking Mo We often talk about the need to ask questions in in what is often called the open to closed cone of questions. Before we talk about gathering information without questions, could you briefly explain what this concept of open to closed questions means? Thank you, Avril. This is a concept which is quite close to my own training. As you know, I graduated from South India and did quite a lot of time in hospital medicine where you're trained rigorously to ask a list of questions called history taking. And the temptation is to ask very close questions, very specific questions. And the reason for this is the clinician is anxious to avoid any red flags and they feel by asking close questions, you get all the facts right. But often in general practice, producing a long list of questions results in low yield information. And this can be quite counterintuitive to how we are trained. So, Open questions allow us to allow the patient to tell us more of a narrative, more information, and it takes a bit of doing to find this out. The open to closed question cone concept talks about how experienced clinicians, especially in primary care, can gather a lot of information just by using simple sounds which encourage the patient's narratives by making simple statements which reflect back what they've just said. The closed questions only invite yes or no answers to confirm or rule out some facts, whereas open questions allow and really give time for our patients to tell their story, what is pertinent to them, the impact of what's happening to them, the context, and often may include genuine ideas, concerns, and expectations. These are the kind of things general practitioner would want to listen to, but by asking an open question, you get them all initially, and you only need to use closed questions to fill in the blanks and to close the narrative. More importantly, I think it makes the listener feel more listened to and understood more as well. 
And uh, the open to close question cone, which is included in the chapter, describes this really well, starting from go on, making a few statements, open questions, and then the narrow end is the close questions. Okay, thank you. It sounds like asking the right questions at the right moments can help us get the information in a quite flowing kind of way. I think there's a third kind of question which is not often talked about but very helpful to know about, which is called an open direct question. So it's not like a closed question that you can answer with a single word, but it does direct attention to a specific aspect of the issue, like can you tell me what your breathing's been like? You can't answer that in one word, but it directs the question. Or, or if you say, how does the pain affect your ability to move around in your normal life? You're focusing, but it, you can't answer that question with a single word. Now, are there any downsides to this approach of asking the right sort of questions? Uh, I mean, why, why are we thinking about trying to gather information without any questions at all, Mo? I think... Uh... In my own personal experience, both, both as a GP and a trainer, I've observed the reaction to our questioning style and how we gather information in general practice. There is this concept of talking in order to listen. And I found that when you listen to the person in front of you, you gather a lot more information. If the very purpose of the GP consultation is to gather information, listening is a high-end skill and I like the idea of talking in order to listen whereas the counterintuitive to the opposite of this is listening in order to talk and I found that before I got the experience I have had and also in learners in general practice like our GP trainees they are listening for a gap in the conversation to ask the next question so you can see almost in their faces that they are too busy thinking about what's the next question to ask. So you miss the rich information which the person is providing you with. And you are just waiting for the gap in the conversation to ask the next question. And this may create a lot of inefficiencies. I think this comes from clinician anxiety and preoccupation. Um, whereas experienced general practitioners relax and understand that the information the patient is providing you is rich with detail. Um, can have a lot of information you don't have to ask further questions on and you can just close it down by asking very few questions to fill in the blanks as well. Also, the clinician anxiety and preoccupation, they worry that if they ask an open question that can result in a very large narrative because of the limited times within consultation, both in the exam setting and in real life, there is a perception that if you ask an open question, that you can get a very long-winded narrative, which can take a lot of time. But evidence shows that when you ask an open question, you get all the rich information within a span of 90 seconds to two minutes. Whereas if you ask a lot of closed questions, there are inefficiencies in the sense that later on in the consultation, the patient may interrupt you, they may keep repeating the narrative, there is something called, I like to call the last minute reveal, almost like one of these uh, thrillers, where on the ninth minute, the patient may come out with an information which you didn't anticipate at all. Um, and often I also feel if, uh, if, if somebody feels not listened to, they continue to book themselves in for future consultations without really knowing why they are doing that. And often when you find out it's because 
they haven't had a good listening to by by a general practitioner and when they feel fully listened to they work together with you on a shared management plan as well I feel like quite a lot of patients have a lot of unrequited narratives in general practice and all it takes is a, a clinician asking open questions who's who's got active listening skills to open that up and that stops them from feeling not listen to at all. Mm. I, I really like the idea of the unrequited narrative when uh, somebody hasn't had a good listening to and I think it's it's interesting the repetition comes from the patient because if the patient isn't listened to they repeat themselves but also I think you see this with the clinicians who are inexperienced because they ask the same question over and over again because they ask the question but they're too preoccupied by thinking about the next question to really listen to the answer and it's it's very common isn't it to hear somebody say something like um you know um do you smoke and the patient's saying something like no i gave up smoking when i came to live with my daughter because she doesn't like smoking in the house and the next question is who do you live with well the patient's just told you they live with their daughter and so you get repetition and that wastes a lot of time in the consultation as well i think so it sounds like in a way, although attentive listening requires a lot of attention, it doesn't require as much kind of anxious preparation of new questions. And, th and the idea of being more relaxed as you're listening to information could be quite motivating for busy clinicians, I think. And there are probably two key skills to make information gather easier. First of all, there's the encouraging skills to encourage people to talk and tell you things. And then there's the active listening skills. So, Mo, could you explain uh, or, or give us some examples of some encouraging skills um, that, that help people to tell us their story in a, in a free way? Absolutely, Avril. I think you, you described it really well in terms of encouraging does not require a lot of energy and it's quite liberating. It reduces anxiety. And I also feel that a clinician asking open questions and encouraging the patient expresses empathy without trying hard to. Another thing I noticed is that we kind of bore ourselves in repeated consultations. For me, if a patient, if six patients present with sore throat and you ask them all close questions, you're going to get the same answers. Whereas if you ask open questions, each sore throat has got a different narrative <laughs> and have different context. Yeah. So it keeps um, your um, day interesting. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a lovely idea, but I'm going to press you a bit harder here uh, on the idea the about encouraging skills. So perhaps getting that information, what kind of phrases can help people give you information without you asking any questions at all? I think that uh, starting from a non-verbal nod an encouraging head shake. I'm from South India, so I can do a variety of head shakes. I'm sure many trainees and GPs do a different way of encouraging them positively using a nonverbal cue. They can use the phrase go on, which is which I feel are the two of the most powerful words in consultation. Yeah. Go on or carry on can encourage our patients to speak a lot more depth and give you a lot of narrative. There are also many variants people may use, which they are the phrases which they are comfortable with. Um, you could use tell me more. Um, you could say keep going. You can also say sounds like there may be more to say about this, which acknowledges the fact that you are looking at them and maintaining eye contact. And the fact that you know there is more to this story than what they're telling you. These are very simple phrases which free up the clinician's mind and prepares them to listen. Um, so they are actually listening, they're talking in order to listen. These are the simple phrases which I meant earlier when I said, 
talk in order to listen. Mm. You only need to talk minimally to listen. That that makes sense because, as you say, then the the, pa- the clinician can be really paying attention to the details of what the patient's saying. And I think you also alluded there to active listening skills that help people to know that you've heard them. And and how do active listening skills help us avoid worrying about, about what question to ask next? What What is the effect of active listening on that? The active listening skills require low effort, but give you high yield in a consultation. Um, these are skills of using phrases or words or cues the patient had given you and reflecting it back to them. Um, They can be encouraging or echoing. And this shows to the patient that they've been listened to. You're paying attention. You're not distracted by the computer screen or any other thoughts you may have. And then that keeps them so engaged in the conversation. They're willing to continue and give you more information. Mm. I think it's so interesting what you say there, because it's true, isn't it, that sometimes if you just reflect back a few key words like, you know, so it's stressful at work. I mean, you're only saying what they've just said to you that moment, but then they'll go, yeah, yeah. And then this happened or that happened or the effect on me is this or actually I'm now so distressed, I'm suicidal or whatever it is. And you haven't had to ask them that. It's just by showing that you're really listening. People feel free to give you some more information. So I'm actually thinking, Mo, perhaps we could actually demonstrate this. And I'm going to ask you to be the the clinician here. uh, And I'm going to start telling you about a a problem. And maybe you could use some of these very uh, encouraging phrases that, you know, the go on or tell me more type phrases and maybe some of reflecting back. And let's just see the effect on the information gathering. Would you be willing to have a go at that? Of course. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about a current problem, which is um, that I've got a window frame in my study, which is basically been a bit neglected by me and is very rotten and really needs replacing. But I'm not really getting around to doing anything about it. Go on. Well, it's silly, isn't it? Because I know that something needs to be done. It feels like a great big hurdle to get on with it. So, you know, and and what's happening is that the longer I wait and don't do anything about it, the more rotten and sort of damaged it becomes. The longer you wait, the, the worse it's getting. Well, you're right. And actually... The fact that you're saying that is really focusing my attention on the fact that that delaying isn't really helping here. And so I think what I need to do is is try and find somebody who can maybe do an emergency repair um, and just sort of fill in the bit that's rotting while I do some proper research about getting a proper new window in there. Where would you find this person? Well, I think I'll be able to ask some friends in the street who've just had some replacement windows done. So that's an example of where I don't think you had to really try hard to think about lots and lots of questions. I gave you quite a lot of information. You probably said about a dozen words. And by the end, actually, we'd started to solve the problem without you having to be the person who who was fixing it, really. So that does show that we can generate a lot of information with quite a few interventions from the clinician. 
Now, I think you've talked before a bit about if we ask two open questions or don't ask questions at all and just encourage people, they'll start talking and never stop. Now, why why do you think clinicians worry about patients never stopping talking? Because it's not my experience. I find most patients do stop talking. But why do you think some clinicians do worry about that? I think clinicians in a busy primary care setting, time has become the single commodity which everybody seems to worry about. Quality, empathy, outcomes are more important for us. But time and number of patients we see seem to have taken over our our sense of primary care. And because most clinicians worry about finishing on time and all the work which is waiting for them, they try to control the consultation and they think that the way to control the consultation is by asking a lot of direct questions. But as experienced clinicians and clinicians who found that the secret of control is, it's, it's almost like Zen. The more <laughs> the secret of control is no control at all. <laughs> and <laughs> allowing your, your patients to talk gives them, but having a sense of time at the same time um, and having the ability to listen for say 90 seconds to two minutes most patients you find, if, you, if you're patient with them, complete the narrative within that time. And all evidence research shows that that happens. Unfortunately, clinicians may interrupt much earlier, never finding out that that's what normally happens. But as I said before, it's, a, it's being, I like the phrase, penny wise and pound foolish. Mm-hmm. By trying to control the consultation earlier on, it results in a lot of inefficiencies. You may have to ask more questions to get more detail on context, on ideas, concerns, and expectations, on the impact of the symptom on their life. And often you find that a lot of direct questions, you may forget to ask the impact and you may complete the whole consultation not knowing whether this pain is stopping the patient from doing anything and impacting on their life, on their work. These have to be extra questions if you don't allow the narrative to flow. Mm-hmm. Clinicians also worry that they may miss something. They've, they, they're listening. If they are focused on the clinical aspects of listening, they may start to worry that too much information coming in may distract them from asking the red flag questions. They may also be uneasy because uh, you, are, you are juggling this role of being a scientist and also being an empathetic consultant, and often one can push the other out of the way. If you're trying to be too scientific, too factual, um, then the emotional content goes unrecognized. And clinicians may sometimes worry that patients may start to unload like they do to a counselor. And that could be the reason why they don't ask open questions. Well, as we know that um, 59 seconds, I think there's a reference there in the chapter which tells you the median talking time at the start of the consultation, if you let them continue, is only 59 seconds um, without asking too many close questions. Mm. And they are more relaxed and more effective consultations if you let it flow. I think all those are really important points. And I, I like the idea that if we get too anxious, we start trying to control things, whereas the best way to control things is is to not control things and just relax and listen to what's going on. And certainly I would agree that 
in my own experience, very often when people start talking about their problem at the beginning, you think, I have no idea what's going on here. I don't really know what they're trying to tell me. But if you resist the opportunity to start chasing after every symptom they mention or chasing after every closed questions you might ask and just say, go on, tell me a bit more, it gradually starts to fall into place. And for example, even if somebody's emotionally distressed, for example, one of the concerns you might have is you might think, well, I need to assess their suicide risk. But if you let them talk and they say things like, I feel really terrible and sometimes I, I feel like I don't want to wake up. But then I think I'm definitely waking up for my kids tomorrow morning because it's so-and-so's graduation or I'm, I'm definitely, you know, the, the only thing that's keeping me going is the thought of going to my daughter's wedding or something like that. You've already got some information, some very important contextual information there, which tells you more about their suicide risk than if you said to them, have you ever thought about harming yourself? Because they might say, yeah, I have thought about it. but them saying something like the thing that's keeping me going is so and so is coming back from America and, and that's going to be fantastic when they come back. Then that tells you so much more about about how they're feeling about things. When I, I completely agree that the very anxiety that you may miss something will result in close questions which stun our patients into silence by not revealing too much information. They feel more embarrassed about giving a more open narrative. They feel that they are being interrogated and they just have to answer the questions they are being asked. So actually close questions can result in a lot of misinformation. And as you say, by asking close questions, you may get very closed answers, which can create more anxiety and more problems to solve. As you very nicely illustrated, assessing suicide risk, asking an open narrative, will get you all the information of whether they thought of harming themselves, what pulled them back, why they stopped doing that, what are the aspects of their life which stops them from going down that path. Whereas asking, as you say, do you have you considered self-harm may result in them saying yes, it will alter the course of what you're planning to do with them. And can and you you do see that in junior, uh, when you're a trainee, you when you're asking a lot of close questions, you end up receiving information which makes you act different to whether if you asked an open question and you may result in more investigations, more referrals because you're anxious yourself. And overall, it results in inefficient general practice in itself and it's very resource intensive. So I think open questions not only make our patients speak more openly, give us more information, but it's also more efficient in the large scale for the NHS and it saves enormous amount of resources and money. Mm. Yeah, I think this open approach where, where we encourage people to tell us what they need to tell us uh, will usually be much more helpful. And when you watch experienced general practitioners work, as both you and I have done on many occasions, they're really skilled Zen-like consultants. They avoid interruptions and they avoid a lot of questions. And as a result of that, they feel more relaxed and they consult more effectively. Now, there's more information about all this in the written materials that go with this chapter in the module. There's more detail, references, and the suggestions for teaching and learning activities, which will help us to develop these skills. It's important to remember that effective summarising skills are a very useful adjunct to good information gathering, and it's actually covered in the module called TALC, Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care, in the chapter called why are effective summarising skills the engine of the consultation? Thank you very much, Mo. Thank you, Avril.
This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.